a gracious Heavenly Father. You are a glorious God. And we only want to open up the pages of Your Word and be confronted with that great reality. Even today, uh, Lord, as Your people, help us to have attentive ears and hearts that are receptive to what Your Word says so that we might worship You as You are all the more and be driven to praise and adoration of our great God and Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, as advertised this morning, we are actually going away from um, the book of Titus for one Sunday uh, to look at the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity. The title of the morning's message is Our Glorious God. Our Glorious God. And I know that most of you have been very excited to look at this uh, issue of the doctrine of the Trinity. Others of you may hear this and you're thinking, what? Um, you know, isn't that a, a, the doctrine of the Trinity something that just kind of heady intellectual people deal with? Or maybe um, those people who are theologians in the church? And uh, the answer to that is no. Um, every single believer or Christian in the church is a theologian. Amen? Because theology means that you are a student of God. And uh, one of the things that, the most precious thing that we know of concerning our salvation is that we have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, by faith, so that we might be reconciled to our Heavenly Father, our Creator God, and therefore now relate well to Him. And part of that relationship, of course, is knowing God, knowing Him and His majesty for who He is. And so the, uh, studying the doctrine of the Trinity has everything to do with you being a believer who uh, comes to know God even in a greater, more uh, clear way. And so this is a, a great, valuable study for us. And it's important for, to us for a number of other reasons as well. Um, first of all, it's important for our Bible reading. You can't read the Bible as a believer and not be confronted with the great central theme of the Bible, who is God. John chapter 4, verse 24 says that we should be worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And so if we are going to be worshipers and we're going to be reading the Word of God, then we need to have Trinitarian lenses as we read the Word of God. So uh, everywhere on the pages of, of, of the Scriptures, you're confronted with the nature of who God is. And so this is a very pertinent study for that aspect of our pursuit of God by means of His Word. It's important also for us because of church history. You understand that we stand upon the shoulders of, of Christians and the church uh, of the past who has wrestled and struggled with, uh, with, with uh, key issues of doctrine. And in many ways, we stand upon their shoulders in affirming that doctrine because to the extent that they brought us to the Word of God to understand what the Bible has to say about key doctrines, especially core doctrines that we must believe to be saved, then um, we should, we should uh, uh, give ourselves to studies such as the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, if you have read church history, then you understand that the first three to four hundred years after the ascension of Jesus Christ were years where the church was largely focused upon formulating confessions and statements of doctrine from the Word of God to refute heresies and error, especially with regards to the deity of Christ, the fact that Jesus is God, and with relation to the doctrine of the Trinity, that we worship one God eternally existing as three persons. 
I think we hear statements like that and we think, oh, pretty piece of cake. I see it all over the Bible. But understand, there were, there were people who wrestled and struggled and debated and, and discussed these things from the Word of God so that we stand upon their shoulders. So it's important because of church history. Thirdly, it's important because who God is has direct implications for our salvation. For example, within the doctrine of the Trinity, if you don't believe that the Son of God is God Himself also, just as the Father and the Spirit are God, then how are you going to trust in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, for your salvation? One who is not God cannot, cannot redeem you from your sin. His death then was not efficient because he must be fully God and fully man to be able to die for your sins. And so it's got direct implications even for your salvation. This is why you must affirm if you are confronted with the, with the biblical evidence concerning the fact that Jesus is God and of the Trinity, even though you might not be able to slice and dice those doctrines perfectly, none of us can. As much as we study the Word of God, you must affirm them because Scripture affirms them. And so it's got pertinence for our salvation, and it's got pertinence for the way that we live and function as a church. How we relate to one another, as we're going to see toward the end of this message, uh, flows from the very nature of God Himself. And then finally, and there are many other reasons to study the doctrine of the Trinity, but finally, more uh, practical for us, we posed a couple of Sundays ago a doctrinal modification to you regarding the issue of, the, uh, of God on our doctrinal statement, and we set before you a proposed statement, and we asked for your feedback on that. And so one of the things that we definitely needed to do is address this from the very Word of God. Not that over the years here at Calvary this issue hasn't been addressed in various sermons and in various shapes uh, uh, or forms, but I think uh, this was very needed as well for us to look at the Word of God together and look at the doctrine of the Trinity. So it's very important for us to study this great, great theme here. Now right off the bat, as you keep hearing me say the Trinity, uh, it's important to say this, uh, the word Trinity itself is not in the Bible. It is a theological term which summarizes, encapsulates what the Bible has to say comprehensively about the nature of God. Namely, that God is three in one. The Bible teaches that Christians worship a triune God. We sing that beautiful song, Holy, 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 right? And it says in one, at one point there, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. I think we take that, those kinds of statements for granted. Oh yeah, piece of cake, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Everybody's always believed that in the history of the church. Not so. Not so. So even when you sing beautiful songs like those, and like holy, 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 you need to recognize that it hasn't always been the case that people have come to a, to a um, uh, uh, um, unified understanding of the nature of God. And not only that, but as you hear that God in three persons, blessed Trinity, it is my desire that as we look at this great doctrine, that we would be uh, driven as we behold the glory and the majesty of God as seen in his triunity, that we would respond with worship, beloved, and adoration and praise and appreciation for our great glorious God that we worship. Amen. So that is my desire. Now, in an effort to want to be helpful this morning to us and to um, uh, have you be able to hang your thoughts on uh, and your notes on key statements, um, I want to set before you three propositions. 
That's kind of going to be our outline. Three statements or propositions that I want to set before you. You know, various theologians over the history of the church, uh, conservative theologians, have um, uh, put forward similar statements or propositions. So in, in one sense, if you hear, hear some of these things that seem very familiar, sound very familiar, you actually should be comforted by that because there should be nothing that I say from this pulpit this morning that should be foreign to you if you're a diligent student of the Word of God with regards to the triunity of God. So it should comfort you if you hear some of these statements because they are, they are very popular amongst conservative evangelicals. So here are the three statements or propositions that we're going to be looking at, and then we're going to unpack them together, all right? First of all, God eternally exists as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Secondly, each person within the Godhead is fully God. Third, there is one and only one God. There is one and only one God. So I want to take each of these statements or propositions, unpack them for us as we look at God's word, and then draw some implications for us, uh, practical implications for the way that we live and the way that we should respond in the light of these key statements that really uh, deal with with the comprehensive uh, amount of passages and texts in the Word of God concerning the doctrine of the Trinity. All right, so first of all, first proposition is this. God eternally exists as three distinct persons. The Bible reveals three, uh, that, that, there, that there are three persons within the Godhead. They are the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. These three have always been. There was never a time, even before the foundation of the world, that one person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, were not. They have always existed in fellowship and in harmony together. The other thing, however, is that they are distinct. They are distinct. If you look at the diagram behind me, that's what we're trying to convey. We're not saying, by the way, that there are four gods. There's a God in the middle and then three other gods, Father, Son, and Spirit. We're merely, with that diagram, pointing, putting before you the twin pillars of Trinitarian doctrine. The unity of God and the distinctiveness of God. So there's one God who eternally exists as Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father is not the Son or the Spirit. The Son is not the Father or the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Son or the Father. The persons are not identical, but they are distinct as far as their personhood goes. And that's a key distinction. From the very beginning, opening chapter, if you go with me to Genesis chapter 1. And I want you to know that we're going to be going to various passages, but we're also going to be providing a... Yes, in, in tomorrow's uh, or Tuesday morning when we put the link online of this, of this sermon, we're going to be putting all of these scriptures in there and additional scriptures as well as some other resources for you. Okay, so if you can go and turn with me, that's better. But if you jot those verses down, you're going to be able to, you're going to be provided with these passages as well. All right. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, from the very beginning opening chapter in the Old Testament, we see already a hint of a plurality of persons within the Godhead. Chapter 1, verse 26, this is after the creation of the, of the universe. And now it's time for the crown of God's creation, man, to be created. And look at what it says in Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. 
And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps over, creeps on the earth. Notice those plural nouns right there already giving a hint that there are multiple distinct persons within the Godhead. Us, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Turn with me over to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 22, just a couple of pages over to your right. This is after the fall of man. And God has pronounced judgment on the serpent who is Satan and on the woman and has cursed creation and, and Adam as well. And he says in, in uh, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 22, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of what? Us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. But notice another plural uh, noun there, us, in verse 22. Plurality, indicating plurality. Look with me in Genesis chapter 11 and verse 7. The Lord had instructed uh, all humans to spread out over and populate the whole earth. And in chapter 11, they rebel and they all want to stay in one place. This is the infamous rebellion at the Tower of, of Babel. And so the Lord says in verse uh, um, 7 of chapter 11, Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. There it is again, a plural noun, us, indicating a plurality of more than one person. You find the same thing in Isaiah, by the way, chapter 6 and verse 8. If you remember in Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees the vision of the glory of God. And he responds broken. And then God says to God, God asks in Isaiah chapter six, verse eight, whom shall I send and who will go before us? He says, who will go before us? Plural noun indicating a plurality of persons. Well, if those passages at least hint at a plurality of persons within the Godhead, the picture becomes even more clear when you get to the Psalms. Look at Psalm two, Psalm two with me. This is a psalm that we looked at a few Sundays ago, a psalm of the king. In Psalm 2, we see in verses 1 through 3, the nations are in rebellion against God. In verses 4 through 6 of Psalm 2, he responds by laughing and scoffing at them because he has installed his king upon Zion, his holy mountain. And then in verse 7, notice this in Psalm 2. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. This is still the, the psalmist writing. But then he says this in verse 7, he said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Notice that. Who is the he there? Well, the he is different than the son because the he says to me, you are my son. So the he there is the father God speaking and affirming the son saying, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And that word begotten there, by the way, is not speaking of a time when the father bore the son, like in the same way that a human being begets another human being and brings a human being into existence. The term there, begotten you, uh, simply describes the eternal relationship that has always existed between the father and the son. But the point that I want to make from that interaction there in Psalm 2 is this. Here is the father and the son, two distinct persons. Two distinct persons. Interesting. Look at Psalm 110. Psalm 110 with me. We can go to so many different passages, and I would encourage you this week to go to some other ones that we're going to provide for you. But Psalm 110. 
And verse 1 says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This psalm is also quoted in Hebrews chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 8. But notice in verse 1, you may notice this, that in your Bibles, the Lord, the first Lord there is in all caps. That refers to Yahweh, the name of the personal name of God, his most intimate personal name, Yahweh, which points to his self-existence and unchanging nature. The Lord, Yahweh, notice, says to my Lord, capital L, little O-R-D, that's the name Adonai, which points to the fact that he is creator, owner of it all, that he owns you and I and all of creation. So the Lord Yahweh says to my Lord Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And if you cross-reference over to the book of Hebrews, especially chapter 8, verse 1, it is clear that it is Jesus, the Son, who after His atoning work on the cross here on this earth, sits at the right hand of the Majesty on high, who is the Father. That is an allusion to this particular passage. So here you have two persons, Father and Son. Now, by the time uh, you get to the New Testament, this, re- this distinction of persons really unfolds and develops. If you go with me to Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 1, in the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ, here appears, appear all three persons. Jesus' baptism, Mark 1, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he, Jesus from verse 9, the Son, he saw the heavens opening, and now, listen to this, and the Spirit, like a dove, descending upon him. You say, is this the first time that the Spirit arrives? No. No, absolutely not. The Spirit was very much at work in the Old Testament in a different way. Right? He, he would come and specifically, uh, temporarily empower people in the Old Testament, such as King Saul, who were, for a period of time had the Spirit of God dwelling in him. But when he rebelled against God, the Spirit left him. The Spirit would come and fill people temporarily for specific missions, little, with a little m, and tasks. The Spirit came, for example, also in Exodus chapter 31, verse 3, to fill, uh, fill the artisans or those who designed the temple, the tabernacle, for them to be able to accomplish that task. So it isn't the first time that the Spirit is at work. The Spirit was very much active and at work in the Old Testament, just in a different way. And so what we see here at the Lord's baptism is that the Spirit of God now descends upon Jesus like a dove, and He's going to empower Him in His humanity for his task here on this earth. But that's not it. Look at verse 11. And a voice came out of the heavens. You are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. So there you have all three persons. Spirit, Jesus, who is beginning his public ministry, and you have the voice of the Father affirming the Son as, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. All three distinct persons. And I think you, should, you need to take note of this. All three persons here at Jesus' baptism are present and simultaneously active. Keep that in the back of your mind because it's going to be critical later on. All three of them are present and simultaneously active at Jesus' baptism as they always are. 
In the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20, you know it by heart. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name, by the way, that's singular, that's a singular noun, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. All three equally important for the task of making disciples. All three of them are mentioned there. John chapter 14, verse 26 In the upper room, Jesus points to all three persons when he says this, but the helper, this is John 14, 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have taught you. Note, Jesus is going to ascend. The Father is going to send, commission the Holy Spirit who is going to appropriate and apply Jesus' mission to his followers upon his ascension. All three working together to carry out one singular purpose, not many. That's so beautiful to me. There's unity and diversity within the Godhead amongst the three members of the Godhead. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, Writing to Christians, Peter says to them, you are, a, you are chosen believers according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. All three members are actively, simultaneously at work in our salvation. Isn't that glorious? It's a beautiful, beautiful truth. So what we see first and foremost is this. The Father, Son, and Spirit are distinct persons, but they are actively working together simultaneously to accomplish one singular mission, one purpose as revealed in the Great Commission. That's proposition number one. Now as we talk about the distinct persons of the Godhead, we need to affirm a second key truth, a second key statement, and it is this. Each person is fully God. Each person is fully God. Neither is inferior to one another. Each is fully God. The Father is God. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul begins to expound upon the the beauty of his salvation toward uh, uh, sinners, uh, God's salvation for sinners. And he says this in Ephesians 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. He calls the Father God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 6, verse 27, Jesus, in the midst of his ministry, encourages the fickle crowds who are following him for his miracles. And he says this to them in John 6, 27, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man, speaking of himself, will give to you, for on him the Father... God has set his seal. He refers to the Father as God. John 17, 3, Jesus says to the Father directly, Now this is eternal life, that they might know you, speaking to the Father, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. There, Jesus is speaking of the Father, calling him the one true God. Now, that was not often very debated in the history of the church, but the fact that the Son is God has been an issue of debate for hundreds and hundreds of years, especially the first three to four hundred years after the ascension of Jesus Christ. But the Scripture also affirms not only that the Father is God, but that the Son is God, fully God. 
In fact, go with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. You know this verse, John chapter 1 in this chapter, because you're always um, debating probably with the JWs that come to your door, right? The Jehovah's Witnesses. This is a key passage. John chapter 1, verse 1. says this, In the beginning was the Word. Meaning that the Word has always been. Has always been. Whoever this Word is. And notice the second statement, And the Word was with God. There it's God the Father. So whoever the Word is, it's not the same person as the Father. They're distinct. But then he says, And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And we know who the Word is from chapter 1, verse 14 of of John, right? Because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, this is Jesus, the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, if you will, who is of whom this verse is speaking here in John chapter 1, verse 1. It says that the Word was with God, so He was different than the Father, distinct, but the Word was God. Not that, uh, that, the, that the Son and the Father are identical persons. Not in that sense He is God. But in the fact that they, are, they share in one essence, one being, one essential nature. Both are God. One God. Beautiful, beautiful truth. Mind-boggling, isn't it? But the Scripture affirms this. Jesus claimed to be God amidst even growing opposition. In John chapter 10 and verse 30, he made this statement to the Jews who were after him and persecuting him, and they were trying to catch him in something so that they might might kill him or condemn him. He says in John chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. Boy, that was a huge statement to them. Not one in the sense of identical, but one being of one essence, of one essential nature, was the Son with the Father. And in chapter 10, verse 33, the Jews, in response to him, say this, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. They knew exactly who Jesus was claiming to be, that he was God as the Father is God. And that to them was blasphemous, that he would even say that. Remember doubting Thomas in John chapter 20, verse 28? Thomas didn't believe that Jesus had risen from the dead and Jesus appears to him and he's able to see the Lord's scars. And Thomas says this to Jesus, my Lord and my what? God. My Lord and my God. Listen, that was blasphemous if Jesus was not God and yet Jesus did not rebuke Thomas. Why? Because the Son is equally God as the Father and the Spirit are God. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit is God. I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 5. The Holy Spirit is fully God. Many people look, look at the Spirit of God as this impersonal force or some power like the power of electricity or the or the force of the of the wind but the spirit of god in the scriptures we see that he's a real genuine person the holy spirit can be grieved according to ephesians chapter 4 verse 30 like a person he has a mind according to to 1 corinthians chapter 2 he knows the mind of god the holy spirit can be lied to as we're going to see here in acts chapter 5 
Here's the infamous story of a couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira who sell a piece of property in Acts 5 verse 1 and they lie about how much they got for the property of, I mean, for, the, for that property. And Peter confronts them in Acts 5 verse 3 and he says to Ananias, the leader, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to who? To who, beloved? To the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land. Now pay attention here, verse 4. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not so under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to who? To God. To God. In verse 3, he says to the Holy Spirit. In verse 4, he says to God. The Holy Spirit is God. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says this, Do you not know, to, the, to believers, that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? There in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Christians are said to house God Himself. So how does God live in God's people? The Holy Spirit lives in them. And therefore, God lives in them. One of the most overlooked passages about the fact that the Spirit is God and on equal, same level playing field as the Father and the Son is the very Great Commission itself. As we make disciples, we are to baptize them according to the Great Commission in the name, singular, of the Holy, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who is put on the same level as the Father and the Son. Why? Because the Spirit is God. As the Father and the Son are God. Three gods? No, one God, as we're going to see. So the Bible teaches that each person within the Godhead possesses uh, the, the full divine nature of God. And this is eternally. Before creation, before the universe, and into the present, each of them have always been God in an undivided manner, completely, fully, not partially. You know, often people want to use the example of the Trinity is like a, is like a triangle. Not so. Not a good illustration. And, and each person of the Godhead is one corner of that triangle. Three gods, each of them share godness, if you will, and each is a third of God. You think that's accurate? Absolutely not. That is an ancient heresy called tritheism. Three gods who split, um, who are each God, but they're each a third God. Three gods, tritheism. Tri refers to three, and theism means has to do with God. Three gods. Colossians 1.15 says, Jesus is the fullness of God. Not partially God. Not some God. He is the fullness of God. And 1 Corinthians 3.16 that we just saw right now, if you have the Holy Spirit, you have God living inside of you. Right? So, the, so each person possesses the nature of God eternally, fully, not partially, and, might I add, equally. Equally. Not one person within the Godhead is inferior to the other, though, as we're going to see, they each have different roles within the Godhead. There was an ancient heresy called Arianism, named after a guy named Arius in the 4th century AD. And Arius essentially taught that there was a time when the Son and the Holy Spirit were not, that the Father actually created the Son and so even though the Son is, is preeminent and prominent, He is not equal to God. He would say things like these. The Son is similar 
to the son or like the father or uh, similar to the father or like the father, but not of the same nature as the father, thus not fully God. You want to know how Arianism rears its ugly head today? In the Jehovah's Witnesses. And Mormons who deny the deity of Christ, that Christ is eternally, fully, and equally God. And therefore, if they don't believe that, they can't be saved until they repent of that belief that Jesus is not fully God as the Father is God. Thankfully, the church rejected Arius' teaching at what is known as the First Ecumenical Council, the Council of Nicaea. And it was at that council that uh, for the first time, there was a, 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 an accurate and clear statement about the doctrine of the Trinity put forward. And I want to read a small portion con, uh, concerning uh, or related to the doctrine of God from the Nicene Creed of 325 A.D. It says this, quote, We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of one being with the Father. Through Him all things were made, end quote. And it goes on. And where it says they're begotten, not made, it is, again, not the same thing as a human a parent begetting a child in time or bringing another human being into existence. That's not how the word begotten was being used, but it describes the eternal relationship between the Father and the Son that has always existed from eternity past and even in human history as Jesus ministered. That's what it means. Begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. There have been some wonderful church confessions over the years, countering some of these heresies like tritheism and Arianism, and another one, modalism, that we're going to see in a couple of minutes right now. The Athanasian Creed, uh, formulated sometime between the 4th and 5th centuries. We don't know exactly when, um, but it reads like this, and I just read the portion reg- related to the doctrine of God, or part of it. It says this, quote, And the Catholic faith is this, and the word Catholic there is not being used in the same way of Roman Catholic, Catholic is being used here in the sense of universal. And the universal faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons, meaning um, confusing them as the same identical persons, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance, meaning that each person is fully, completely God in essence at the same time. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit is all one. The glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Beautiful statements. What they are seeking to do and what they did, beloved, is just encapsulating what the Word of God comprehensively has to say and trying to put it in words that human beings can understand. The Westminster Confession of Faith In the 1640s, some 151 master theologians met to discuss doctrine with the result that they produced this great doctrinal statement that for many conservative Protestants is a standard. And it reads this, the Westminster Confession, quote, There is but one only living and true God 
who is infinite in being and perfection. And then later on it goes on to say, In the unity of the Godhead there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. End quote. See, all of those three great confessions and others were written to counter the various historic heresies of, of tritheism, the fact that there are three gods who each share a third of God, or Arianism, that the Son and the Holy Spirit are not God, but created at some point, even if the Son is, is preeminent. And another heresy called modalism. Modalism. Or Sabellianism, it was called as well, named after a guy named Sabellius in the 3rd century. This guy essentially said that God is one and the same person, and listen to this, and simply appears in three different forms or modes, thus modalism. I could say as a, as a, um, as a man, I'm one man, right? And I might say this, I am one man, but at certain times I am a pastor, at other times I am a husband, and at other times I am a father, and that's helpful in emphasizing the fact that I am one person, but the problem is that I am still one person doing three activities at different times. That is classic modalism. Classic modalism. Somebody has said, well, the Trinity is like H2O. It's like water that can be three things at three different times. It can be solid ice or liquid running water or vapor or steam. See, the problem with that is that the same H2O molecules can't be all three things at exactly the same time, right? H2O is a good example of modalism because the Bible teaches that God is Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit simultaneously at the same time. Each person lives eternally as God. Not just forms or modes that are being manifested. It is who God is. And this relates in particular, beloved, to our doctrinal statement and why we felt the need to modify um, our doctrinal statement in a minor way concerning the, the area of the doctrine of God. Um, the current statement re- reads like this when you look at the section under God. There is one God, perfect and infinite in all of his attributes. And then it says this, who has chosen to reveal himself in three distinct persons, i.e. the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. All three persons have existed from eternity and are separate in their identity and function, but one in purpose and substance, all three together being the one eternal God, worthy of worship, praise, and obedience. But that statement there, who has chosen to reveal himself in three distinct persons, can be misunderstood as modalism. Listen, God has not chosen to reveal himself as three distinct persons. It is who he is by his very nature. He is three in one. He hasn't chosen to reveal or manifest himself in three ways or in three modes. And it could be understood that way. Though certainly whoever put this together in the past did not intend that to be the case. And so all we are trying to do with the new statement is put forward uh, a statement that expands and elaborates upon really what, what, what can be called the twin pillars of Trinitarian doctrine. 
the unity of God and the distinctiveness of God, the oneness of God and the diversity within the Godhead. Those two must be held closely together and find tension because both are emphasized in the word of God, that there is unity and there is diversity within the Godhead. God is one, but he eternally exists as three persons. And that's what we're trying to emphasize in our doctrinal statement and not be misunderstood in any way as teaching modalism. All right. Now, if each person of the Trinity is distinct and eternally, fully, equally, and simultaneously God, should we conclude then that there are more than one, that there's more than one God? Answer? No, absolutely not. All three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit are one God. Identical? No, in the sense that they share one, they are, they are one being, co-sharers of, of one nature, one essential essence, if you will. Essential nature, but three persons. To say this is not a, a contradiction, because God is not three in the same way that He is one. God is one being, one essence, uh, has one essential nature, but is also three persons. Three persons. And those are different terms there. So thirdly, the third proposition that I want to set before you is this. There is one and only one God. One and only one God. In Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 35, Moses is preaching to the Israelites as they prepare to go into the promised land. And he says this to them, To you, Israelites, it was shown that you might know that the Lord, Yahweh, He is God. There is no other beside him. There is no other God. There's only one God. He was telling the Israelites. Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four through five in the passage known as the, the great Shema, which means in Hebrew to hear. It was the great confession of the Hebrews that they were a monotheistic people. It says in Deuteronomy six, four through five, hear, O Israel, the Lord Yahweh is our God. The Lord is one. The Lord is one. It was a pantheistic society in the day, meaning the worship of many gods. So Israel was to declare unequivocally and definitively that they were a monotheistic uh, a group of people who worshiped the one true God, the only God in that statement. That word one there, by the way, has a sense of, of unity of more than one person. It is used in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 where it says that the man and the woman became one flesh, one flesh. There it's speaking of two people coming together as one flesh, meaning in unity. And so the point from Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5 is that that passage beautifully confesses monotheism, the worship of one God, but it does not preclude or make impossible the fact that we worship a triune God, one God in three, one God in three. If the Bible teaches that Christians worship one God is very clear. Even in the book of James, as James uh, in James 2.19 is, is exhorting and rebuking the Jewish believers of his day concerning many areas of life. He says this in James 2.19, You believe that God is one? You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. See, the orthodox belief of the Jew was monotheism, the belief in one God. And even in his rebuke, James affirms their belief in one God, not three gods or many gods, but one God. 
Isaiah chapter 45, verses 21 through 22. There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Now, with all of this talk about um, the distinctiveness and the unity of God, the question may be asked then, okay, if the three members of the Trinity are one, then what distinguishes them? What distinguishes them? The answer is, well, not their nature or their essence. They are each eternally, equally, fully, and simultaneously God. So what distinguishes them, listen, are the ways that they relate to creation, to salvation, and to one another. It's what we call in theology their economic roles, their functions, with relation to creation and salvation and to one another, how they relate to one another within the Godhead. With relation to creation, the Father is the grand master planner of creation. The Son executes and carries out the Father's plan of creation. The Spirit assists in the carrying out and application of that plan, each of them working harmoniously together within their unity and diversity, beautifully and perfectly to accomplish one purpose of the creation of the universe. Note that with relation to salvation, according to Ephesians chapter one, in that great um, uh, passage of Paul, just extolling the, the name of God because of salvation with relation to salvation, according to Ephesians chapter one, the father planned salvation. He purposed salvation. He does it in and through the son who accomplishes salvation by means of his atoning death and the spirit applies salvation awakens the hearts of spiritually dead sinners to the glory of the Son and their need for a Savior. They work together in harmony, even in salvation. And then finally and beautifully, with relation to one another, there is this eternal and beautiful relationship which has existed in the Godhead. That's, that's what, the, what the names themselves, real names, not just titles, but names of Father, Son, and Spirit communicate. That there's been this eternal and filial or family relationship that has always existed within the Godhead. The Son is eternally in submission to the Father. We see this pictured on earth. In John chapter 8, verse 28, the, uh, Jesus says this, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, and I do nothing on my own initiative. But I speak these things as the Father has taught me. And he who sent me, the Father, is, is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him, meaning my Father. From eternity past, beloved, and in Jesus' earthly life, he lived in submission to his Father to accomplish his Father's will. And the Spirit submits to the Father and the Son. John 14, 26 says, But the Helper, with a capital H, meaning the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, the name of Jesus, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. He says, my father is going to commission the spirit to come to earth. He's going to come representing me and my name. And he's going to minister and do his work amongst God's people. And that's exactly what we see the spirit of God doing in the book of Acts. 
The Spirit doesn't come in the book of Acts, beloved, to exalt Himself. The Spirit comes, having been sent by the Father and the Son, to, to awaken the hearts of spiritually dead sinners to the glory of Jesus Christ, to the exaltation of Jesus Christ, to the glory of God the Father. So beautiful, isn't it? Beautiful. And in no way do these roles imply inferiority or inequality within the Godhead. In the Trinity, we have this ontological equality, but economic subordination. You say, what in the world did you just say right now? Ontological equality, meaning that there's equality in being, in essence and nature amongst the persons of the Godhead, but economic subordination, meaning that they are unique in their joyful submission and in their carrying out of their role within the Godhead. Ontological equality, economic subordination. Now listen, up until this point, you're like, what in the world did we just go through right now? Right? Are these things pertinent for our lives? And I would answer thunderously, yes, they are. Even as we've been talking about discipleship in the church, think about the implications for the way that we live in the home and in the church. Think about the implications for worship. How do you worship and adore someone whom you do not know as he is revealed in his word? You must know God as He is revealed in His Word. Again, John chapter 4, verse 24, we must worship God in spirit and in truth. And so as we confront the pages of God's Holy Word and this beautiful, uh, glorious God that we worship, we must understand that, that, that it must drive us to awe and to marveling and to being amazed so that we adore and praise our Heavenly Father together. Amen? And this triunity, it's got implications for our prayer lives. The pattern according to Matthew chapter 6 and verse nine, verses 9 and following that Jesus gave to his disciples is that we pray to the Father through the Son in the power of the Spirit of God. Now notice what I said, the pattern. That doesn't mean that you could, if you've ever prayed to, the, to, the, to Jesus that you are a heretic and, and God forbid that you should ever do that again. Or that if you've ever refer, uh, referenced to, uh, made a reference to the Holy Spirit in your prayers that you are wrong. The pattern is that we pray to the Father, through the Son, in the power and enablement of the Spirit of God. That is the pattern for our prayers. It's got implications for our view on, of authority and submission. Um, as we look at the, the Godhead, this, and this beautiful reality that, that Father, Son, and Spirit, um, there, that there is, a, that there is a, a submission there of the Son and the Spirit to the Father's will, and, and the Spirit um, uh, carries out and implements and applies the, the will of the Father and the Son. They are both, uh, all of them, working together in unity and within their diversity. That is a beautiful truth. Authority and submission beloved, listen, are a problem for us here on this earth, not because it's a problem within the Godhead. It's a problem because of our sin. We have corrupted and misused authority. And we often think of submission as, as slavery and those kinds of things. But there's perfect authority and submission within the Godhead. And so that's how we're called to function even as believers, beginning in our homes, the reason why husbands and, and wives have an issue with authority and submission is not because there's a problem in God's design. It's a problem of our own sin, you see. 
But authority and submission, even within the context of a home, of a loving home, is not only how God designed it from the very beginning in creation, but it has to do with the very nature of God, you understand. With the very nature of of those economic roles within the Trinity. That there's authority and submission, loving authority and willing, joyful submission. And that is to be the pattern of of our relationships in our homes. And the way that we live out being husbands and fathers and wives and mothers and so forth. And it's got implications for our relationships in the church. Listen, we have a relational God. In fact, he is tri-personal, isn't he? Tri-personal. Before any of us ever came into existence, beloved, there was, there was perfect, beautiful fellowship and communion within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit fully sufficient and in perfect fellowship with one another. And we were created as an overflow of that loving harmony that existed between them from eternity past. How beautiful is that? This means that even in the church, if we have a God who is tri-personal, if you want to put it that way, then it's got implications for the way that we pursue relationships in the church and for the way that we are not to be functioning, listen to me, in isolationism and independence because that does not reflect the nature of who God is. Think about it. Flowing from His nature, this nature of unity and diversity, He created His church to reflect Him, we are members of one another according to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. Jesus is the head of the church, the supreme ruler and master of the church, and we are individual members of one another. None of us are to be, inter, are to be independent, but we are interdependent and in union with one another as believers in Jesus Christ. Where does that come from? From the nature of who God is. It's like God knew exactly what He was doing with His church. Amen? We reflect that in the body of Christ, the very nature of God in the way that we relate to one another, not in isolation, but coming alongside of one another in relationship with one another. So listen, there are two twin pillars of Trinitarian doctrine that we always need to uh, keep in, in fine tension. Unity and diversity, oneness and distinctiveness. And when we try to emphasize one over the other, we get ourselves into trouble, such as, just like the ancient heresies of the past. We need to also recognize this. The Trinity ultimately is a mystery, isn't it? It's a mystery. Men spent, spent decades and decades and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of hours have been poured into trying to understand the nature of God as it relates to His triunity, if you will. And yet, they didn't figure everything out. But thanks be to God that they were diligent Berean students who did figure out comprehensively, generally, what the Scriptures taught concerning both the unity and diversity of the Godhead, right? But even so, there's mystery. There's mystery. So what do we do? Throw up our hands in the air and not try to wrestle with Scripture? Absolutely not. We study Scripture diligently and we affirm what Scripture affirms But what Scripture leaves as mystery by God's design, such as the full inner workings of how the Trinity works and all of that, we trust that God will one day help us to fully understand. Amen? To fully understand. So note the three statements again. God eternally exists as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God, equally God, simultaneously God. 
But there is one and only one God. And that's what we're trying to express um, and um, set forward in the modification to our doctrinal statement, beloved, to reflect those precious truths that we see consistent in the Word of God as it relates to the nature of God. Father, You are a glorious God. Thank You that You sent Your Son, Jesus, into the world to, Lord, die on the cross for sinners such as us, Lord, who deserve only hell and condemnation. And yet, Lord, when we put our trust in Him and we turn from our sins and Lord, we trust in His sufficient sacrifice. Thank You that we can be reconciled to You. And thank You that You sent Your Holy Spirit to apply the truth to our hearts and minds, to show us the glory of Your Son, the majesty of Christ, all for Your glory and the exaltation of Your great name. Father, help, help us as we hear these truths, that we would wrestle with them and that we would be driven to worship to adore you, to praise you for who you are as you revealed yourself in your word. Help us to appreciate you, to praise you. And Father, help us to live out the implications of your character and nature, Lord, in our homes, in our individual lives, as well as in the church, Father. We pray all these things in your name, in the name of your Son. Amen.